All right. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Talking Addiction and Recovery Podcast. I am your host, Andrew J. Schreier. And our guest today, I'm really excited about. This could be one of the most anticipated episodes coming up where I've talked about the book that she's written and some of the work that she's done. And a lot of people have been asking me, when is this going to be available? So it's taking a little bit of time, but I am joined by V. Buford who is uh, really here to share about her book, Addicted to Perfect, A Journey Out of the Grips of Adderall. So V, thanks for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me. I am honored and excited to be here and and get this started. Yeah, so a little bit of background. You uh, bring your professionalism, perfectionism training and concepts to life in a fun and relatable way. You work on empowering teams and companies to transform the way they work, produce, and relate. And you are a certified executive coach, an award-winning speaker, and author of the book, Addicted to Perfect, which we're going to get into quite a bit. Uh, Before starting her own business, you spent 14 years working in marketing and business development for a variety of industries and professional service organizations. And now your life purpose is helping leaders in workplaces transform cultures of perfectionism to cultures of excellence, which I, I find very intriguing. So... There's a lot going on there. There (laughs) There (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So when I talk to people about your book, there's two things that captured its attention more than any other. And it was perfectionism and Adderall. And as someone that has done substance use counseling now for 18 years, I've never read a book that solely focused on Adderall. So this was like one of the first of its kinds that I have found. And then you're tying in the perfectionism piece to it is another issue that was mind blowing to, to read about what was it that really got you to be like, I need to share my story, especially about perfectionism and Adderall. Yeah. So when I got sober seven and a half years ago, I just, I knew I would tell my story because no one was talking about Adderall addiction. I felt really lonely in my addiction. I knew other people struggled with it, um, but no one was talking about it. It wasn't really recognized. I mean, a lot of people dabbled in Adderall, but that wasn't their sole addiction. And so for me, I was like, I want people to feel less alone, uh, feel like their voice is being heard. And maybe I can help one person by telling my story. And I think also because I had been so silent the 10 years that I was in Adderall addiction, like telling the truth and telling my story was such an important piece because I've been lying for 10 years and keeping my addiction a secret. So being open and vulnerable about it and telling my story was so important. And it really wasn't until I wrote the first draft and really was putting my story together that I was like, oh, this is a perfectionism problem. Yeah. And you even talked about you identified Adderall as like the invisible drug And you talked about how everyone talks up Adderall as like a study drug. So like as a culture, what do you see where we're at when someone views like Adderall? Yeah. So, um, and there are people who legitimately need it. I abused it. Um, for me, you know, I think just the pressure that we're put on to be to be perfect, to be productive, to get things done, that so much of our worth is tied into being human doings and not human beings. Um, and just 
like, you know, our worth is tied to our results and our productivity and how many hours we work and our title. Um, and Adderall was, and I even say this in the book was quote, the perfect drug for me, because it allowed me to achieve all those external things that I thought defined my worth. And that was hard too. So as I was, I was reading your book, here I am as like a mental health counselor. And then I also do substance abuse counseling. So I, I do both. And I'm, as I'm reading your book, I'm looking at things that are like, okay, like maybe this is someone that, yeah, Adderall is needed. And all of a sudden I hear something where it's like, okay, this is definitely abusing Adderall. Like, it seems easy for someone to look at some of the things that were going on and think like, oh, she needs something to help focus or help stay on track. So how complicated is that to differentiate between when someone is having an issue versus when someone's abusing it? Yeah, I mean, I feel like there are measures that are put in place today that really prevent, uh, I mean, people still abuse it, but I, it, for me, there were no systems in place. Like I was wide ass open, you know, <laughs> like the Casper system wasn't really being utilized, you know, to that, the database of like when you fill your prescription um, and, you know, doctors weren't communicating with one another. So, I mean, you know, like I was able to doctor shop Honestly, even though that's illegal, I was able to do those things um, because there wasn't a whole lot of tracking near the end of my addiction. Those tracking systems were put into place. So it was more difficult for me to um, maintain the tolerance that I needed um, to get the result from the drug that I thought, again, I needed. Um, So I don't know how you tell the difference between someone who needs it and who doesn't. Um, I knew all the right things to say. I mean, I was a drug user. I was manipulative. You know, I I was going to do anything to get my drug. And I think too, like once for me, like once I had a prescription, I didn't have to prove it to any other doctor. So I was like, well, a doctor, one other doctor's already prescribed me. So, you know, there wasn't really a whole lot of checking going on. Um, but again, I think today, like, um, there's a little more responsibility, uh, with the medical community than there was probably back then. And I do want to talk about, uh, get into a little bit more about the doctors because you, you do talk a lot about that in your book, but one of the things you know, when you say doctor shopping, we hear that a lot with like prescription opiates. We hear that a lot, even with like benzodiazepines, but it was really not talked about with something like Adderall, but we were talking about it with other substances, but you would never really hear about that with Adderall. And I think part of you is in your book, you talked about how people like viewed it as Adderall or um, as like Advil. And it was like, not that big of a deal, but it can, it can do a lot. You even described the Adderall flu. I think there's a lot of people that don't even know what that is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so which one of the questions should I answer first? (laughs) (laughs) Either one, but it was just interesting that is it because of how we viewed it that we weren't doing things like paying attention to doctor shopping and that we don't think of the severe side effects of abusing it because people look at it as simple as Advil. Yeah. So, yeah. So I think, you know, people really, I don't think there was a whole lot of Adderall um, abuse happening. Like, I think mostly it was like people were taking it with benzos. People were taking it with their alcoholism. Um, My alcoholism came with my, with my Adderall. So the alcohol was on the side, the Adderall was a primary. Um, And so I think people, again, society view, like society promotes perfection. And while there are some people who experience mania 
and all of those things. Um, I would say uh, for the most part, it's like being productive, right? You're, you stay really thin, you're really productive. And so society rewards those things. So of course, like you're not typically passing out <laughs> on, on Adderall, right? I mean, there were times where I was extremely tired, right? Because I had to stay up 24 hours. But again, we're in a society where that drug fits in pretty perfectly. Yeah. And that's why like the perfect addiction in, in the cycle of it, but it was also very, it was, I don't want to say terrible, but it was, it was so hard the way that with perfectionism, that idea of like, what matters most is that like, I'm, I'm perfect. That I get this done. But even when you start to do things that get you to think that you are achieving it, there's a point where all of a sudden it becomes a downward spiral where you all of a sudden think that you're not perfect in something and then all of a sudden it's like, well, then I have to be that way again. So it, it was such a vicious cycle with the perfectionism piece, a part of that. Oh yeah. Yeah. Cause perfection, I mean, well, A, it's unachievable. It's not actually a thing, but it's, it's when we are outsourcing our self-worth and our intuition and our decision-making to everything outside of ourselves. And when who we are and how we identify with ourselves is based on external circumstances, the target is always moving. You know, when someone's judgment of me completely shake, you know, rocks my world <laughs> when, you know, what I'm my, my annual salary depend, you know, determines my self-worth It rocks my world. Right. So it's constantly this moving target. And so the goal in healing your perfectionism is to bring all of that in house, right. To become unshakable because your confidence and your self-esteem and your worthiness is built internally, not externally. Yeah. Part of the quotes that I love from the book was perfection is the thief of joy. It's a lie that keeps us in a strange hold of chaos and people pleasing and addiction. So yeah. it, you see that a lot and especially what was great to see with your book. And I'm interested to hear your thoughts where we are today is you didn't even get into some of the stuff with like where we are today with like social media, with, with some of those factors of perfectionism, but that was that's to say that perfection was still something that people have been struggling with for a very long time. That's just not a new thing. That's been a, a battle for some people for a long time. Right. Yeah. No, perfection has been happening for a while, but no one talks about it because we've say like, what well, you want to be perfect. I mean, we use the phrase perfect. That's perfect. You're perfect. Perfect timing, whatever. We use that word so freely. Um, and so, and so, yes, it's not a new concept, but the concept of it holding you back and actually preventing you from living your life and that it actually can be its own addiction in, a, uh, in and of itself. Right. I mean, my Adderall, as you know, I mean, you do, this is what you do for a living. You know, our, our addictions are just symptoms of a bigger problem. Um, and mine was, was perfectionism most definitely. I think it's really hard to even acknowledge that that's that I struggle with perfectionism because even if I have people who are struggling with some issues, they still might try and, like act like they have it all together, you know, like right. they, they might see, be seeing me and their, their life is in shambles, but they still might try and be in denial right. that, that I've got this or it's going to be okay. But if you were to like walk into like a, a support group of people or walk into like a therapist's office and be like, you know, I struggle with perfectionism, like that right there, like requires some vulnerability that like, 
I don't have it all together. Like I'm not good enough. That's not something that's easy for someone to just say to another person. Right. Right. Well, because perfectionism is so isolating, you know, because we don't want to tell anyone that we need help. We don't want to tell anyone that we don't have it all together. And so for me, that's why like my mission on this earth is to help all perfectionists become recovering perfectionists. And 97% of people struggle with some form of perfectionism. So it's, so for me, like when it's, when I talk about it, it's first and foremost, like educating on what the symptoms of perfectionism are and then, okay, that's how we're defining perfectionism. So it's even like just that education piece of what perfectionism is, what are the symptoms and then giving people the tools. Yeah. And that's a good point you bring up. So like, as, as like a clinician and and someone that's like, you know, interviewing people, diagnosing people, going through people's history with, which includes everything, you know, from family to health, to education, employment, you know, the gambit, I can 100% say asking about perfectionism is not something that we're trained to do, talk to do, um, educated on. So a big thing that would help is what are signs that we would look for that if we are talking to someone or we're having a session with someone, what would be a red flag? That's like, wait a minute, that could be something perfectionist related. What would those be? Yeah. So, um, some of the main symptoms of, of perfectionism are people pleasing, right? People pleasing is one because we need other people to be happy for us to be happy, constantly seeking external validation, right? Not being able to know how to make a decision for yourself. So constantly seeking advice externally, like, what do you think I should do about this relationship? What should I do about this career? What should I have for dinner? Right. Not making that decision. Cause again, perfectionism disconnects us from our true selves because we've been seeking the answers externally. We don't know, you know, so it's really like you have to rebuild how you make decisions, how you, how you, um, how you're defining yourself. It's when we um, are indecisive, right? We don't know how to make a decision for ourselves, or we make a decision and then we spend the next few weeks questioning it. Did I make the right decision? I made the wrong decision. It's when we're constantly comparing ourselves right? I should be further along. The word should is always a sign (laughs) of perfectionism because it's us comparing ourselves to unrealistic expectations. So unrealistic expectations are also a sign of perfectionism. Um, Control, the need for control is, and that was the, I mean, a big thing for me, right? The need for control, Um, control how I feel, control what I think is going to make me happy, control my, you know, what I think my path to success should look like, Um, and how that's going to make me feel, um, avoiding conflict is another sign of perfectionism, right? We don't want to have that difficult conversation with a colleague or with a loved one because we can't control them. Or we're so afraid that if we, if we speak our true needs up, we'll be rejected, right? That fear of abandonment. And you mentioned that a lot in your book through, throughout the the number of times where there was, it's, it sounded like you're about to have a, a breakthrough conversation with someone that you needed to, but you would acknowledge like pulling back or not wanting to that happened a couple of times. I'm sure it happened more throughout your life and your story, but that was highlighted quite a bit in your book with, with different people in your life. Yeah. Yeah. It's when we don't ask for help, it's all or nothing thinking, right? We either are working out seven days a week 
or we're not working. You know, it's that all or nothing, black and white thinking. Procrastination is also a sign of perfectionism, right? Because we put things off because we're afraid it's not going to be perfect enough, right? Like I need to start that project, but I'm so afraid that I'm not going to be able to do it perfectly. So let me stress out about it and have anxiety about it for weeks. And then the byproduct, imposter syndrome also is a sign of perfectionism, right? Like being in a meeting and not speaking up, right? I'm so afraid that I'm, I have this great idea, but what if people judge me for it? What if it's not really that great of an idea? So those are some, some of the main symptoms. And so people can really, you know, it's like when I talk to people initially, they're like, oh, I'm not a perfectionist. I don't need things to be perfect. But then when I pull out the symptoms, you know, they're like, oh, <laughs> I've got like 11 out of 12 of those, yeah. you know? <laughs> The, the interesting part is two things as you're reading those off was happening. One, there were definitely, you know, clients and patients in my mind that were starting yeah. to ding. But the other part was, it seems so easy for those symptoms to be mislabeled as th- something else. Right. And I can imagine that happens way more often. So like someone who is indecisive about a decision. And we think like, why aren't they making this decision? Like they need to make this decision, but we might look at them as being like avoidant, or we might look at them as being, um, well, they're just lazy, like procrastinating. Maybe they're just identified as being lazy because they're procrastinating. So it's like how many, you know, symptoms of it are actually mislabeled as other issues. And I can't imagine that happens all the time. Yeah. And so that's, you know, like what I'm, the, the message that I'm pushing is, is pretty new, right? No one's really looked at all these things under the umbrella of perfectionism. And so like, again, that's why it's my life's work. In fact, Andrew, I'll just share with you. I just actually hired out proprietary research on perfectionism. And so the report will actually be done in two weeks That's awesome. last year, because there's no, I mean, there's some research on perfectionism, but not a whole lot. And so I was like, okay, like I'm going to need data to back up the things that, that I'm talking about, because I know these things to be, I mean, I experience them. I see it. It's, it's because we're so afraid of not being perfect. You know, also critical self-talk, another sign of perfectionism. Like when we're, we're, we're raging against ourselves you know, the amount of time, like we send an email and there's a typo in it. And then we beat ourselves up the entire day because there is a typo. It's like, move on. Right. And that's where I think some of these symptoms are just getting not, they're not just, they're not being missed. Like they're being seen, but the perfectionism is not being seen, but we see the symptoms and it's like, that could be like, someone might think that's anxiety or that's like something else, but they're missing what's behind it is like the perfectionism. So that that's key because things that you're saying, we see those. It's not like they're not, we can't notice them. We notice them, but we probably look towards other sources as what's causing it. Right. Right. And then the byproduct in my experience, the byproduct of my perfectionism was anxiety, you know, Um, depression can be a byproduct of that. So, and again, that's my experience. Right. Um, This is, I I think this is a great thing to explain to people. When I read this quote, I underlined it, did everything I could to to make sure to talk about, but the quote was in some twisted way, I need that storm for survival. I feel the safest in a storm. I feel the safest in the middle of complete chaos. I know there's plenty of people that, you know, loved ones, family members, other people are like, how can they 
be in such chaos? Don't they just want the chaos to end? Can you describe exactly what you're talking about when there's that that need for that where you feel safest in chaos? Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's, I mean, again, I think a lot of that stuff is born in our childhood or young adulthood. Um, like for me, um, there was a lot of unknowns and a lot of chaos in my childhood, right? So my mother was an alcoholic, my parents were workaholics, and it was very unpredictable when they were going to get home, if my mom was going to be sober or not, you know, she'd walk out of the room sober, walk back in, not sober. And so like that hypervigilance, but the, the chaos of that created of the unknown and like always needing to be on guard, um, that became normal for me. And then also the dopamine that I got off of chaos, right? The rush that I get from procrastinating, the rush that I got from my addiction um, and the rush probably from the moving target of perfectionism, right? That subconscious need to continue to try and prove my worthiness. Yeah. It's like to, to chase perfection, there's gotta be some imperfection, like some, some chaos right. or some storm that like I need to, in order to achieve perfection, I need to have like the dysfunction in my life to then achieve it. But that's just part of that, that cycle that is vicious. Right. And so, you know, and it's allowing your life to be good, right? Like that's like so much of what the work I'm doing around myself right now is just allowing my life to be good. I don't have to find something wrong. I don't have to dissect this area of my life. You know, like I don't have to always be growing, you know, things can just, you know, like I can let things and I can allow things to be good. When there's perfection, there's always, you know, like there's always another layer that needs to be fixed. You know, there's always something else where I'm, that I'm not good enough for. It, uh, you, you talk a lot about relationships, talk about family, uh, yeah. an, an incredible amount. I was curious that after I got done reading your book, I was wondering, I was like, what would it be like if someone else in her family wrote their story about what was going on? Yeah. Like what if, what if your mom wrote a book, but more so like, what if your family kind of like, it was a family story of what was going on and, and how would that, how would your story fit into that then? But there was definitely a lot of family dynamics that you were willing to share. That was very, um, it, it took a lot to do. I mean, there's a lot of deep stuff in there. Yeah. Well, cause I think too, like we shame ourselves for how we are, but if we can just look back at our childhood and say, you know, that was just how I survived in my childhood. Perfectionism was how I got love and attention or what I thought I needed in my childhood. It just doesn't serve me anymore. And when you can connect the dots to your childhood, it allows you to just have a little more grace for yourself. Like, of course I'm that way right now, but I can also do something different. And then for me also giving my family members, Grace, you know, they were doing the best they knew how to knew how to do. And, and while that was not good enough, they were doing the best they knew how to do. And you would see that in your book, you would, you would notice times where you were then that, that empathy and that grace would, would be showing and recognizing those things, which from the beginning, it, it doesn't happen as much because you're living in it and just trying to get through it, you know, just like survive it. Right. And, then, and then here you are, as you're progressing, starting to see more with it and, and learning how to have boundaries, how to like, because you talk about establishing boundaries and, and and that's not easy to do with family, but still being able to do that with with grace and stuff like that. So how was how was it 
how was your book perceived with with family members and and others who you who you mentioned? How was that for you? Well, you know, like they knew that I was writing it. My parents were really scared because they didn't know what I was going to include in the book. And I had to be really thoughtful, right? Like there were some stories that I took out um, of the book just because I was like, you know, um, why am I including this? Is this a critical part of my story? Like, am I doing this because I'm still hurt? I'm hurting from this, this story and I just want to include it as like a stab <laughs> to my, you know, to my family. But So every story was was relevant to telling my story. I was very thoughtful about that. My mother still has not read the book um, and my dad did and we have not talked about the book. Now, my relationship with my parents today is the best it's ever been because of the boundaries, because of the work I've done, because of me choosing to forgive them um, and, and, and all of the work that I've done around that. It wasn't easy to get there. But I think too, really quickly, you know, the one of the double-edged swords of perfectionism is when we hold ourselves to perfectionist standards, we hold everyone else around us to perfectionist standards. And so you can't really connect with people. And so for me, you know, it's like to give myself room to be human allows everyone around me room to be human too, right? right. Like if I wasn't working on my perfectionism, there's no way I would have had the capacity to forgive my parents. And to all the things that you struggle with yourself, like unrealistic expectations like when you start to realize the ones that you hold to you it kind of shines light on that you know what sometimes i hold people to unrealistic right. expectations of course so it opens up that you know that grace that that empathy that compassion where you know I, sometimes i think i'm just hard on me but i'm also hard on others because i'm hard on me so that 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 helps definitely build relationships there's we, we talked a little bit about doctors and what was going on, but one, it was interesting to see you. I was, I was trying to see how high the number of doctors was getting because you, because you labeled them like by number. Yeah. I was, I was interested to see how many that was going to reach. But the one I want to talk about, because this ties into another issue that makes your book very um, important and necessary to read tying into addiction and perfection is Dr. Seven talk to you about eating disorder. Yeah. And I think it's, I've had a, other podcast episodes where eating disorder, it's another one that's not talked about enough. Um, then we tie in this perfection. So you describe that as like a breaking point when that doctor asked you about that. Can you, can you share about that experience? Yeah. Yeah. So I first want to start off by saying it was interesting when I first got sober, I remember being in outpatient rehab after being in inpatient rehab. And I remember a girl in the room and I'm pretty sure it's in the book, but I remember her saying like, you know, I've, I've been working on my eating, my eating disorder and like connecting and, and making, connecting the dots between her alcoholism and her eating disorder and me being like, what is an eating disorder have to do with any of this? You know, like, I'm like, well, I mean, I was blind to this. And then here I go. And, you know, um, it's like addiction whack-a-mole, right? So I removed the Adderall and then, oh, in its place comes an eating disorder, which it, at the heart is, is perfectionism and control, right? And so for me, I just, I, I didn't even know, there was no one that was educating me on connecting to the dots that this is something that you can replace. This is a replacement addiction, something to watch for. Um, and so for me, you know, while there's definitely some controversy around that doctor and other pieces of the story related to him, um, 
I was really grateful to him for bringing up the fact and saying out loud that I had an eating disorder and really helping me accept the fact that I was because, you know, for me, when I viewed eating disorder, it was the lifetime movie, people in the hospital, that's what an eating disorder is. And I'm like, I'm healthy. Like, yes, it's running my life, but like, I'm not in the hospital. Like I'm able to function. Um, and, and then it was just heartbreaking to me because I was like, here I am. And this addiction is consuming as much of my time as my Adderall addiction was. With, with your experience and with the work that you're doing, do you think that if anyone is diagnosed with an eating disorder, if there's concerns about an eating disorder, do you think perfectionism is something that should be like automatically looked at or, or at least explored? Yeah, most definitely explored. And, and I think too, like really redefining um, what an eating disorder is. Like for me, when that doctor said an eating disorder is a disordered relationship with food. I was like, oh, well, my relationship (laughs) with food is definitely, (laughs) it's definitely not normal. So, you know, like I definitely have a disordered relationship with food. Like, you know, like that allowed me to, because I was like, I'm not anorexic. I'm not bulimic, but man, this, this consumes my life. You know, like I think about what I'm going to eat. I make myself work out seven times a day, sometimes twice in those days, you know, like it was, it was, um, and, and restrictive eating. So I think it's also like educating. And I think social media, there's a lot of people on social media that are educating about that. So I think that that's been super, um, helpful, um, to help, educate on what disorder, what an eating disorder slash disordered eating is. Yeah. And the, the, another thing that I've been learning so much about and now we're tying into the perfectionism, the eating disorder is for some people that I've like mentioned it to and kind of talked about with is another area that I think gets neglected is these issues with men that right. like at eating disorder is, is not a man's issue, but perfectionism and eating disorder is something that I think definitely goes unnoticed to even look for with like male population. Do you find that as well? Oh yeah. Men deal with it too. We just call it different things. It manifests in different ways. I mean, most definitely. Um, And so I think normalizing the discussion and like, you know, if you can, and maybe even, you know, maybe does it need to be, maybe it's called disordered eating when we introduce it versus eating disorder, you know, whatever it's good. It is going to be to, to accept it, but it's like, is it running your life? Do you think of, you know, like what percentage of your thoughts are consumed with food and your body image? Um, but that was, I mean, at the end of the day, my body image was one of the main reasons I was on Adderall was to control my weight because I was already successful and high, high achieving and performing without the Adderall. That wasn't, I mean, it allowed me to you know 10 X that, but for me, the Adderall shut off all of the negative self-talk and around my body. It shut off all of the, of the food talk. And I was like, oh my God, I have this so much more space in my life. I don't have to think about food and working out and Weight Watchers and another diet. And uh, I'm at, this is this little curveball. So we got the, the eating <laughs> disorder now. We've got Adderall. Yep. We've got perfectionism. You also talked about the cigarette smoking yeah, that was going on. Now this is yeah. one like traditional counseling therapy treatment is, you know, you can go to treatment to get sober and you can have your coffee and cigarettes. Like it's just one that we don't necessarily address or really treat, but 
you did like make it a point to talk about like what the function of cigarette smoking was doing. Was that on purpose? Um, that I talked about cigarette smoking. Yeah. That you like made it a point to like, talk about like the role it had versus like someone who's just telling a story of like, well, I smoked this pack and that was it. But you, you did get into a little bit about like what the role of cigarette function, like what it was doing. Well, because it was related to my Adderall addiction. I mean, when I stopped taking Adderall, I mean, I, I smoked cigarettes for a year after that, but it was literally just because I'd smoked cigarettes for 10 years. And then finally I was like, what am I doing? I just, you know, I stopped. Um, and so for me, like, I think that there is a true connection because I wasn't even smoking as, and I, I wasn't smoking nearly as much when I got sober as I was when I was on Adderall, because it was this constant need to, to be busy, to be doing something. And, and my stress levels were so high when I was on Adderall that it allowed me to just kind of come down. Yeah, so, um, a more. yeah, this is where like that, your story just captures all of this, this <laughs> cycle of stuff with like, you got eating disorder, you have Adderall, you have perfectionism. And then you even, even something like that, the cigarettes and how that plays a role in that. It was so many interesting things that were all happening that a lot of those go unnoticed. I mean, a majority of things that you were talking about go hidden among an area of need, but, but thankfully you're doing your life's work now talking more about that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, that was because perfectionism wasn't even my niche when I started my business, but it was literally when I wrote the first draft of my book in 2019, where I was like, Oh, this is my life purpose. I'm like, no one, no one is talking about perfectionism. People talk about perfectionism as a symptom, but they never talk about it as the umbrella issue in my, I mean, that I've been, that I've found. And so for me, I was like, this is what I've been put on this earth to do. And even this is a great part too. You talk about going to treatment and rehab and being someone that's worked in residential inpatient group home, halfway house, all that. I loved reading about it because I thought it was just very genuine. You start asking like, how long will I be here? What will my life be like after rehab? And I'm like, yeah, these are all things that I love exploring with, with a client or a patient, but I want to talk about once again, this, you wanted to be perfect in recovery. Oh yeah. You wanted to follow the rules perfectly. You wanted to do the step work perfectly. You didn't want to mess up. And I can imagine like as a treatment provider or a therapist, I would be like, oh yeah, they're going to be a, a great patient because they're going to want to do everything, but that's dangerous, right? That's dangerous to try and be a perfect person in recovery. Yeah. Well, it is because I think everyone's also, everyone's recovery is different. Everyone's recovery is different. Some people, and again, there are so many different thoughts about this, but some people, the 12 step model works for them. Some people get sober without that. I mean, you know, there are so many different ways. Um, and so for me, I was like really trying to fit myself into this box because, and 12 step was an important part of my recovery. I mean, my early recovery, I mean, it was a critic, it was structure that I needed, mm-hmm. um, but I still felt so alone. Uh, do you think part of some, and just from your experience, but I know that there's been plenty of like, there's programs and stuff that if you like, you break run one rule, you're kicked out, you do something like this and you are absent based program, you 
relapse or you use one time, you're done. So do you think sometimes that even as treatment providers that we send the wrong message about like, you've got to be perfect here or you're going to get kicked out or booted? Like, do you think sometimes we like impose that you got to be perfect or else? You know, I don't know. Um, maybe, and maybe it's, you know, like, and there are so many layers, right? Like there are right. things that I would not have been able to hear or deal with in early recovery. I mean, no way. Right. I mean, it's, it was a, like, <laughs> you know, the transgression or the, tra- you know, like the, how my recovery flowed in the different parts of my life and past and, and issues that I dealt with happened at the time that I needed to. Um, for me, like the program that really spoke to the heart of all my issues was the adult children of alcoholics. Like that for me, I was like, oh, like this is the core of, of all of my suffering. I think that too, cause those like groups like that support, like if you, you don't have to be here, you don't have to be perfect to be here. Like you can mess up yesterday and still come in and talk about what you did and messed up and you're still like, welcome back. So it is a group of like imperfect, not in a negative way, but it's a group of people that struggle that are going through some things that they can support one another where you don't have to come in there and be like, everything's perfect. Like I'm good. Like everything's fine. Um, But I just wonder if, you know, some of the places that sort of hold this, you got to follow everything to a T and it's like an area that you are non-compliant with all of a sudden, like we, we need to get rid of, like as treatment providers, we should expect that people, they didn't get to us because they (laughs) are acting and behaving so well, like they're, they're sick. Like they, they need to get better. Right. Well, I think just being a little more flexible, right? Like for me, you know, I did AA and, and, and CA when I moved back to Kentucky, like the CA community wasn't as strong. So I did AA because I felt well, this is what everyone does. So I need to do this, but I felt disconnected. And, and for me, it just, it wasn't, and this was before I found adult children and alcoholics, but I was just like this program, like I almost started forcing myself to think of myself as an alcoholic. Now I used that term earlier, but like, I wasn't, I think of myself as an addict. Um, I was on the verge of becoming an alcoholic, but I don't believe I was there yet. And so I was like starting just because I wanted to fit in into the AA program. I was like, well, you know, let me force myself <laughs> you know, to call myself this alcoholic. And again, I don't drink and I'm not going to drink. <laughs> um, and, and, and I'm completely sober. <laughs> um, but it was like, I was trying to fit in. Right. And so I was like forcing um, an issue that wasn't even an issue. And still trying to still in a way, I'm sure trying to like that fit in that, that right. yeah, probably people pleasing at times. Right. Um, like, but I want to belong to this group. I want to belong to this community. So when I found adult children of alcoholics, I was like, oh, I feel so seen and heard because it's the core of the issue, right? Like it's our self-worth. It's healing our inner child. It's really, you know, taking a look at our past and our childhood and what happened and why we are the way we are today and choosing forgiveness and choosing to heal and all of those things. So how, like when people look at perfectionism in particular with this being something that isn't talked about, not nearly enough, we're still trying to understand it. You're, you're talking now about 
having research done so we can even know more about it. So we are trying to get to a better place of normalizing, talking about it, recognizing it, treating it, understanding its effects. When you look at where you are now, how would you look at, like, what would your recovery from perfectionism be? Like, how do you begin that path or what are important components of recovering from perfection? Because I imagine that's something that some people think is, you know, they come in like, okay, how do we take care of this? How do we get this done? But that's not, I'm guessing that's not the answer. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So I will say that we always teach what we need the most, right? So like, while you know, like there are many parts of my perfectionism I have healed. There are still pieces like I like control that still come up for me that I'm struggling with <laughs> on a daily basis. Um, for me, it's about, I think the, like one of the most important steps is really becoming a person of curiosity. Mm. As perfectionists, we are in our heads. Like perfectionism gets us out of our hearts and into our heads. And so we stay stuck, right? That's where the self-criticism comes the, oh my gosh, I'm going to procrastinate. We overthink we're in our heads, all or nothing. Right. So we stay stuck in our heads, right? And no change happens when we stay stuck in our thoughts and our heads. And so if we can become curious observers of our thoughts, we get out of our heads, right? We can stop treating our feelings as facts. We can use our thoughts as information. And so when I am working with people and organizations, whatever it is, it is I mean, curiosity, curiosity is an important skill as a human to have as perfectionists. We don't want to be curious because to be curious would reveal our imperfections. That is, that is spot on. And I don't think we never, we don't want to ever be shown that we don't know the answer. We have our our annual review in our career and there's something wrong with it. It's like, oh my gosh, this is rocking my world, right? Any sort of form of feedback, anyone telling us we're wrong, you know, like that is against curiosity. We feel like we have to know everything and it's just a protection mechanism. And so when you can become a curious person, right, which is when you start looking at your thoughts, why am I responding that way? Why am I reacting to this person? Why is that triggering me? That's when true change really starts happening. Why am I being so hurtful to myself? You know, why did I just say those things about myself? Why did I just say those things about someone else? So I think curiosity, I mean, there are many other tools that I teach because, you know, this is, this is the stuff that I, you know, I, I teach <laughs> every day and I love it. But curiosity is a really first important step. And then another step too, and feel free to tell me to stop because I love this work and so I could talk about it forever. But what I've done is I've created two types of perfectionism. And really it's about also identifying your perfectionism patterns. So the two types of perfectionism I've I've developed is slow perfectionism and fast. Mm. So it's keeps you stuck, right? It's the procrastination, the indecision, the imposter syndrome, the not asking for help. On the other end of the spectrum is fast perfectionism. Fast perfectionism is the workaholism, the people pleasing, the all or nothing thinking, the go, 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 the chronic multitasking, right? So there's, and there's many different pieces. I'm just giving the overview. Yeah, but I like that. There's slow perfectionism and there's fast. Some of us will identify more with slow. Some of us will identify with more fast. If you're anything like me, you're a hybrid, right? In every single area, right? It's like, and so I educate like on all the different areas of our lives, how we lead others, how we lead ourselves, relationships, health, finances, how slow and fast perfectionism show up in every single area. And I have people do a deep dive 
in their own life? Am I slow here? Am I fast here? Am I both? Am I neither? I would imagine this, <laughs> this sounds like a, another book being written about like, it the, is. I'm the... going to start writing it next year. <laughs> But it sounds like this is like your story is the first part, but this this second or follow up is more of like this education piece on it and like the recovery from it. Because even just hearing what you describe now with like the slow and fast, I think that would help to differentiate when we talk about some of those symptoms that are often ignored or mislabeled. And using that slow and fast helps you to actually learn more about that this could be a perfectionist issue and, and having that in the, the question about the, the curiosity I find fascinating because it's a tool that we don't talk a lot about in treatment and recovery. However, I feel like that pays homage to like very, very traditional historical, like roots of know thyself and, you know, like self-discovery where that, that is all about like that curiosity, but it seems like fast forward to today where we are in the world that that has been forgotten. Right. Because we all want to be right. Right. I would say that all sources of conflict are are like rooted in the need to be right. Um, And I'm speaking from experience here, you know, And (laughs) and so that's, you know, like, and so curiosity is the opposite of needing to be right, right? It's being open to growth. It's that growth-oriented mindset. Why am I doing that? And honestly, the more curious you can be, the more you get out of your own way. I've always said the the person that says I know it all, like learns less. Like they now have learned less. You know, like they've right. thinking you know everything really shows that you are <laughs> now learning less, and and you're not getting any more knowledge or, or information and the younger you are, that's scary because you just haven't even experienced a lot to, to say that, but that curiosity is, is gotta be an ongoing life. I mean, that can be a, a coping skill for no matter how old you are throughout your life. Yeah. I mean, I have my clients do a daily curiosity check-in with themselves. But that's great through a four-step process, um, which allows them to course correct the second half of their day. Um, and That's it can be awesome. awkward, but you know, it just allows you to really disrupt because the patterns of perfectionism are deep, right? Like for me, it's more than three decades of my life. And so, so most of my life. Um, and, and so you've got to disrupt that pattern with something, you know, that's a little more radical. And so, yeah, so I do this, you know, this curiosity check-in that I call the four C's. And it's, it's really powerful. So the four C's, and again, you can tell me to, to stop talking. Um, the four C's are, um, the first C is criticism. So noticing your critical thought. The second C is curiosity. Get really curious about that thought. The third C is compassion, right? Get compassionate. Of course, I would respond that way. Like it makes sense. It's, it's how I've been living my life. You know, this is whatever it is. And then the fourth C is choice. So choosing a different action, choosing a different thought, choosing something better. Yeah, I like it. It's got so many great components of like, you know, person-centered compassion, self-awareness, like connection to thoughts, mindfulness. Um, You know, it's got almost like motivational interviewing with uh, the choices, like such great components that are 
Yeah. And I think also very useful for perfectionism, you know, like all of those are really great for addressing that. So your four C's are, they're strong. Like that's, that's for sure. (laughs) Well, you know, it's again, like when I wrote, I mean, and I created it right after I wrote the draft of my book and I was like, I got to create this content. And I just tested it out on tons of people, whoever would hear, you know, um, and it's, you know, it's, they're, they're proven, but yeah, that's like my proprietary, the slow and the fast and the four C's and all that there's, and there's a, I mean, that's, that's just the beginning of the, of the tools. Yeah. And there's, uh, one of the things is, you know, when we look at how do you, we talked about like the signs or, you know, like symptoms of perfectionism, but even when I was onto your website, people can take a perfectionist. They can. T- correct. Yes. Yeah. And I'll tell them what kind of perfectionist they are. (laughs) Yeah. So you are, you are doing some work where that people can actually just try to learn a little bit more Mm -hmm. about it. Um, and even your, your website offers that. Yep. Yep. So that is, that's really great. And even the, the stuff with like your intro, um, you looking at doing that, even not just like with an individual thing, but you're also looking at doing that with like, workplaces and organizations, like a cultural aspect of it. So can you just share a little bit about that difference when you're doing it with like a culture or a organization as opposed to like one individual? Yeah. So for me, it's like, okay, this is showing up in individuals that are showing up in the workplace, right? Because cultures of perfectionism in the workplace are cultures that lack trust. They are fear-based cultures. It is, you know, those um, productivity, people are burnout. There's no, tr- there's no trust. There's no communication. There's no accountability. People are not having the difficult conversations. And so there's so many tools that I teach, but for me, like I love culture change. That's part of my corporate background. And so to be able to merge both the perfectionism, because if I look, I mean, when I worked in law firms, I mean, that was a perfectionist environment. And so it's about like, I teach these things because I believe how you like how you lead others is how you lead yourself. And so to be able to impactfully lead others and change your leadership abilities, you first have to look at your own stuff. And so when I'm working with companies, like I first let them know, I'm like, we're going to be doing a lot of internal work on individuals. And so if that's not okay with you, if you don't believe in that, then I'm not your person because I don't believe in surface level coaching. I don't believe in surface level consulting. Like I want to get to the heart of the issue so that you can deal with real change. And it's going to shake stuff up, right? There are going to yeah. be people who decide to leave. There are going to be people who, you know, like that do not like it, but like perfectionism is a problem in the workplace. And you, I'm, I think I'm going to answer my own, my own question with this, but you, you talked about it. And it just definitely caught my attention. If, someone is leading or managing and they are doing it with like this, you know, perfection is, you know, like where they expect things to be perfect. Is that like a telltale sign that that is how they are towards themselves? Most definitely how we treat others is always how we treat ourselves. And so I have a lot of people that I do work with and they're like, well, I'm going to heal my perfectionism, but what if the person I work for doesn't? And so oftentimes, like, because also working, like when you start healing your own perfectionism, you're able to see why people do the things they do, right? You stop, you stop personalizing and taking things personally, right? So if you're working with a perfectionist, you're able to recognize that. However, it, you may not want to work in that environment anymore if it's not a cultural shift. Yeah. I've just, I've, 
and thinking about that, I've just recognizing where there's been times where you look at like leaders, managers, and Mm -hmm. they're describing, you know, what they're trying to do or how they're trying to do something. You kind of get that sense where it's like an employee or person is like, wow, it's like we have to be perfect or we're trying to do like perfect productivity, perfect results. And it, it really didn't click to me to think about that. Like that's probably how that person treats themselves. Yes. Um, yeah. So in a way, that's, why, that's why it's gotta be cultural. It's gotta be like it's systemic work. I mean, that's why it's, I can't just, I mean, I can come in and train 10 people, but that's, I mean, th- this work is long, you know, longer term working with every level. You can't just work with, you know, it's, it's, it's every level and it affects every level, right? Like C-level leaders, perfectionism manifests differently than directors, than managers, than your, you know, than your entry-level employees. I mean, it impacts every different level, but it shows up differently. Um, And so it's, it's educating about that. And then also people being willing to make the change. And with, with the work that you do, I'm curious, anything that you've been doing or noticing in relation to like, children or adolescents and anything with that with perfectionism because I can only imagine that is that is something that has I hear a lot of that with um some other clinicians that I work with that I work with like teens and like stuff like in in high school but even younger so have you seen some stuff with that with you know kids and teenagers with perfectionism oh most definitely I do a lot of talks Um, in fact I just gave a talk to 300 students at a college on Tuesday night, I did a huge workshop for them. Um, so Great audience. And it shows up with, with high schoolers. I mean, you know, it's like, oh, I've got to have the perfect GPA to get into the perfect college because my life's going to be ruined otherwise. You know, and it's way more competitive now than it was when I, you know, I'm almost 39. So it is way more competitive now than it was when I was in high school. So I can, I can't, and there were, and social media wasn't a thing was when I was in high school. So I can only yeah. imagine what these kids are going through right now. I mean, it's, it's, um, it's highly perfectionistic. So yes. And then a lot of people come to me and they're like, oh gosh, you know, I'm a perfectionist and I'm seeing this in my child. And they're like, what do you do? And my, my real, um, theory around all of that. And, you know, I have a 10 year old is, you know, you heal yourself, you heal your children. Yeah. I think that's, you heal your children. And so that doesn't mean there's not actions you can take today, but the more you work on yourself and get out of your own way, I mean, your kid observes that you're going to be more open to communicating. You know, I messed up. I shouldn't have yelled at you. I'm really sorry. And that's where I see the value of family systems work Yeah, is, is really important because when you look at like a, a family systems lens, you look into like, like unwritten rules of the family or like family secrets. And when you look at that, I imagine that if you did that, like perfectionism, or I have to be perfect is probably like one of those themes that that is going on there. And instead of looking at it as like, this is like our child who has that, it's probably like, this is more of like a systematic or or family issue, not just like this child has it. Yeah. Which is why I, I want to do like, that's why like doing the change in the workplace is so important to me because the ripple effect of that is so huge, right? You start changing it in the workplace. It impacts their families. It impacts their communities. You know, it doesn't just impact the workplace. Yeah. It's got a, a amazing ripple effect in right. both ways, the both right. ways, the, the perfectionism, 
on full drive is going to have ripple effects in, in ways that can be damaging, but also yeah. being able to recover from perfectionism can also have the ripple effects that will have a, a wide reach too. So it is a very great area to address it and, and work on it. And I don't think people would necessarily think that's the one of those to do it. So good for you for identifying that. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. So what, so kind of to, to, to wrap up here is what do we, you mentioned another book. (laughs) Um, You mentioned the research that you are also like, so what's, what is the future you are looking towards with what you are trying to do in, in all these areas that we talked about today? Where, where are you headed? Uh, So for me, you know, I want, um, my dream and what I'm going to make manifest is, um, you know, I want to, the company that I'm building, I want to have 20 people training all over the world with companies globally, all the perfectionism speak, because for me, it's about, you know, really changing the fabric of corporate America and changing this perfectionism, because again, the ripple effect, right. And I'm talking about changing the individual. Um, and so that's how I see that. Um, and so really, and it becoming like, just common language, right? That we're not looking to be perfect. We're looking, you know, I believe that the opposite of perfection is excellence. So really even replacing that word. Also, like one of my dreams is on my vision board is, and I'm just going to throw this out there because you got to throw your dreams out into the universe is I want Reese Witherspoon to produce the movie of my memoir. You think she... Do you think she fits that? <laughs> well, I, not starring it. I wanted to produce it because she she produces women, you know, a lot of books that women write and a lot of women stories. But I think it's a story like, you know, people that have read my book, I mean, men, women, whatever, whoever it is that's reading my book. I mean, there's always a piece of it that people relate to, whether it's the body image issues or the family issues, or maybe, you know, there's there's always the relationship issues. Um and so I think it's a, a story um, that helps people feel seen. That'd be amazing. I would I would go see it if I if I <laughs> knew her. I would try and talk to her. Um, well, hey, maybe but, some, one of your listeners. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because I'm like, who knows? Who knows? Yeah, <laughs> but I mean, it's 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 amazing, you know, groundbreaking stuff that that it's been your life journey and now it's your your life work as well. But even just talking about what we have today, like there's just so much about perfectionism that goes unnoticed and it, it gets labeled as something else. Um, you know, the tools you're using, like curiosity and looking at excellence instead of perfection, there's just so much to learn about it that I think a lot of people just, they don't have any of this knowledge. Right about it. So your, your book is like a starting point to it. Your book isn't a, like read this and then that's all like, that's just really like a, a kickstart to what you, you have and what you're growing. Cause you're, you're growing more stuff with it and building more to, to really help people. And your book was really a, a huge way to start that. Thank you. And I'm, I'm honored that you read it. Like anytime someone says they read my book, I feel so honored. Um, so thank you, Andrew. Yeah. Like I said, there was so many people that <laughs> even, 
you know, acquaintances, friends, coworkers, you know, colleagues and such. When I was talking about the book that I was reading and the topics of Adderall and addiction, like stood out to so many people that were very interested in wanting to, to learn about it, which is just highlighting some of the stuff that we talked about where so many people can relate to it. That it's just a topic that we can all relate to it, but we're not talking about it. We can all get a sense of what that was like, but we're not sharing about it. And yet there's all these people that do relate to it. Right. Right. So I'm, I'm, just very interested to see what what comes up with the stuff that you have and and paying attention to it the research thing that you're doing is amazing you know as a as a clinician to see someone um spend those resources to get that done is not easy and it definitely shows like a commitment you have to taking this serious so that's just another thing to to tell listeners and show listeners that this is a very like serious committed thing to learning more about that you're, you're doing. Yeah. Yeah, no, it is. And I mean, it's when you can overcome your perfectionism, I mean, your life, you know, when you start healing it, your life changes, your life opens up, you know, perfectionism puts this limit on your life and it just removes all those limits. Yeah. It's amazing. I'm, so incredibly thankful that you decided to join and, and talk about it. And Thanks for yeah, having me. yeah. And the book, um, addicted to perfect, a journey out of the grips of Adderall. It is, it is one that you will gain so much out of. I hype under there's so many questions and stuff and, and things that I underlined, but <laughs> you did a great job talking about it and they can find you on social media. That's how I connected yeah. with you. Um, you have Instagram. Do you have Facebook? I do, but I'm not as active. I mean, um, so yeah, LinkedIn, Instagram, um, and then my website is just, it's Vitaly Buford. Yeah. And I want to spell it out for people. It's www.vitalebuford.com. And and they can learn all about your stuff. They can do the perfectionism quiz. Um, there was, it's a great website. It was a lot of great information on there. So thank you again for, for joining, uh, you know, read her book, go to her website, connect with her through all the different ways and what you shared with us today on perfectionism and, and eating disorder and Adderall is, I know it's going to help a lot of people. I can guarantee that. Thank you. Thank you so much, Andrew. Yeah. Thanks for joining. And as always, thanks for listening.